Welcome to the LibriVox Recent Releases Podcast for June 2008. Like all LibriVox recordings, this recording is in the public domain. In June, the LibriVox community of volunteers have released 69 audiobooks into the public domain. That means LibriVox have added 455 free audiobooks into the public domain in just the first six months of 2008. Today I have samples from 10 of the June releases for you, so let's get into them. First up, Hospital Sketches by Louisa May Olcott. Olcott, in 1862, served as a nurse in Georgetown, D.C. during the Civil War. She wrote home what she observed there. These harrowing and sometimes humorous letters are compiled to make up hospital sketches. The following sample is taken from Chapter 1 and is read by Aaron Elliot. The doctor hadn't come yet, and I was morally certain that he would not, till, having waited till the last minute, I was driven to buy a ticket, and five minutes after the irrevocable deed was done, he would be at my service with all manner of helpful documents and directions. Everything goes by contraries with me, so, having made up my mind to be disappointed, of course I wasn't, for presently in walked Dr. H., and no sooner had he heard my errand and glanced at my credentials that he said with the most engaging readiness, I will give you the order with pleasure, madam. Words cannot express how soothing and delightful it was to find, at last, somebody who could do what I wanted without sending me from Dan to Beersheba for a dozen other to do something else first. Peace descended like oil upon the ruffled waters of my being, as I sat listening to the busy scratch of his pen, and when he turned about, giving me not only the order, but a paper of directions, wherewith to smooth away all difficulties between Boston and Washington, I felt as did poor Christian, when the evangelist gave him the scroll on the safe side of the slough of despond. For the second sample we have the Enchanted April by Elizabeth von Arnim. It's a dreary February in post-World War I London, when Mrs. Wilkins spots an advertisement in the Times for a small Italian castle for rent in April. She sees another member of her women's club, Mrs. Arthbanot, reading the same advertisement, and manages to convince her that the two of them should rent it. Both are miserable and lonely in their marriages. They can't afford the cost of the villa San Salvatore on their own, and must advertise for two others, eventually recruiting an elderly widow named Mrs. Fisher and Lady Caroline Dester, a beautiful young socialite desperate to escape from London and society. The four journey to Italy, where San Salvatore works its magic separately on each of them, changing their lives in unexpected ways. The following sample comes from Chapter 1 and is read for us by Diana Kiesnes. But Mrs. Wilkins, laying her hand softly and caressingly, on the part of the times where the advertisement was, as though the mere printed words of it were precious, only said, Perhaps that is why this seems so wonderful. No, I think that's wonderful anyhow, said Mrs. Arbuthnot, forgetting facts and faintly sighing. Then you were reading it? Yes, said Mrs. Arbuthnot, her eyes going dreamy again. "'Wouldn't it be wonderful?' murmured Mrs. Wilkins. "'Wonderful,' said Mrs. Arbuthnot. Her face, which had lit up, faded into patience again. "'Very wonderful,' she said. 
but it's no use wasting one's time thinking of such things. Oh, but it is, was Mrs. Wilkins' quick, surprising reply, surprising because it was so much unlike the rest of her, the characterless coat and skirt, the crumpled hat, the undecided wisp of hair straggling out. And just the considering of them is worthwhile in itself, such a change from Hampstead, and sometimes I believe, I really do believe, if one considers hard enough, one gets things. Mrs. Arbuthnot observed her patiently. In what category would she, supposing she had to, put her? The third book today is one I'll be downloading myself. It's called The Lost Stradivarius by John Mead Faulkner. The Lost Stradivarius by J. Mead Faulkner is a short novel of ghosts and the evil that can be invested in an object, in this case an extremely fine Stradivarius violin. After finding the violin of the title in a hidden compartment in his college rooms, the protagonist, a wealthy young heir, becomes increasingly secretive as well as obsessed by a particular piece of music, which seems to have the power to call up the ghost of its previous owner. Roaming from England to Italy, the story involves family love, lordly depravity, and the tragedy of obsession. The following sample is taken from the first file in the book, and is read by Clarica. Letter from Miss Sophia Maltravers to her nephew, Sir Edward Maltravers, then a student at Christchurch, Oxford. To Sir Edward Maltravers, Baronet. 13 Pontsfort Buildings, Bath, October 21, 1867. My dear Edward, it was your late father's dying request that certain events which occurred in his last years should be communicated to you on your coming of age. I have reduced them to writing, partly from my own recollection, which is, alas, still too vivid, and partly with the aid of notes taken at the time of my brother's death. As you are now of full age, I submit the narrative to you. Much of it has necessarily been exceedingly painful to me to write, but at the same time I feel it is better that you should hear the truth from me than garbled stories from others who did not love your father as I did. Your loving aunt, Sophia Maltravers The fourth book for June is Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, that is, Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs' autobiography written under the pseudonym Linda Brent, details her experiences as a slave in North Carolina, her escape to freedom in the North, and the ensuing struggles to free her children. The narrative was partly serialized in the New York Tribune, but was discontinued because Jacob's depictions of the sexual abuse of female slaves were considered too shocking. It was published in book form in 1861. The following sample is from Chapter 2, and is read for us by Elizabeth Clett. My grandmother saw through his hypocrisy. She understood very well that he was ashamed of the job. She was a very spirited woman, and if he was base enough to sell her, when her mistress intended she should be free, she was determined the public should know it. She had for a long time supplied many families with crackers and preserves. Consequently, Aunt Marthy, as she was called, was generally known, and everybody who knew her respected her intelligence and good character. Her long and faithful service in the family was also well known and the intention of her mistress to leave her free. When the day of sale came, she took her place among the chattels, and at the first call she sprang upon the auction-block. Many voices called out, 
Shame! Shame! Who is going to sell you, Aunt Marthy? Don't stand there. That is no place for you. Without saying a word, she quietly awaited her fate. No one bid for her. At last a feeble voice said, Fifty dollars. It came from a maiden lady, seventy years old, the sister of my grandmother's deceased mistress. She had lived forty years under the same roof with my grandmother. She knew how faithfully she had served her owners, and how cruelly she had been defrauded of her rights, and she resolved to protect her. Another autobiography for our fifth book. This one by Jack London. And incidentally, at the moment you can find fifteen other Jack London completed works in the LibriVox catalogue. This one is called John Barleycorn, or Alcoholic Memoirs by Jack London. Jack died at the age of forty. In this autobiographical work, London describes his life as seen through the eyes of John Barleycorn, alcohol. There is much controversy about the cause of his death, just as there is about alcoholism and addiction. London's brutally frank and honest analysis of his own struggles and bouts with alcohol was way before its time and more modern theories of addiction. With remarkable candour and insight, Jack describes the demons and gods he encounters through both friend and enemy, John Barleycorn. The following sample is taken from Chapter 1, and is read for us by Peter Kelleher. I know the drinking game from A to Z, and I have used my judgment in drinking. I never have to be put to bed, nor do I stagger. In short, I am a normal average man, and I drink in the normal average way as drinking goes. For the sixth book, we have The Siege of Belgrade by Alaric Alexander Watts. LibriVox volunteers bring you nine different recordings of The Siege of Belgrade by Alaric Alexander Watts. This was a weekly poetry project for the week of the 25th of May, 2008. This is from version one, read by Anne Cheng. Poor patriots, partly purchased, partly pressed, quite quaking, quickly, quarter, quarter, quest. Reason returns, religious right redounds, Suwaro stops such sanguinary sounds. Truce to thee, Turkey, triumph to thy train, unwise, unjust, unmerciful Ukraine. Vanish vain victory, vanish victory vain. Why wish we warfare? Wherefore welcome were Xerxes, Ximenes, Xanthus, Xavier? Yield, yield, ye youths, ye yeomen, yield your yell. Zeus, Sarpater's, Zoroaster's zeal, attracting all, arms against acts, appeal. The seventh book is a LibriVox short story collection, volume 30 by various LibriVox volunteers. This book contains ten short works of fiction that have all been culled from the public domain and read by various LibriVox volunteers. The following sample is from The Tabby Terror by P.G. Wodehouse and is read for us by Hattie. If he eats beetles, objected the sister, he can't have a very good coat. He doesn't eat them, just squashes them, you know, like a policeman. He's a decent enough beast as far as looks go. But if he steals things... No, don't you see? He only does that here, because the praetors don't interfere with him and don't let us do anything to him. He won't try that sort of thing with you. If he does, get somebody hit him over the head with a bootjack or something. He'll soon drop it then. You might as well, you know. The house will simply black your boots if you do. But would Mr. Praetor let me have the cat? Try him anyhow. Pitch it fairly warm, you know. Only cat you ever loved, and that sort of thing. Very well. I'll try. 
Thanks, awfully. And I say, you might just look in here on your way out and report. Mrs. James Williamson, named Miss Trentham, made her way dutifully to the Merivale's part of the house. Mrs. Prater had expressed a hope that she would have some tea before catching her train. With tea, it is usual to have milk, and with milk, it is usual, if there is a cat in the house, to have feline society. For the eighth June book, we have another story collection. This is the horror story collection number four, recorded by various LibriVox volunteers. It's an occasional collection of ten horror stories by various readers. They aim to unsettle you a little, to cut through the pink cushion of illusion that shields you from the horrible realities of life. Here are the walking dead, the fetid pools of slime, the howls in the night that you thought you had confined to your more unpleasant dreams. The sample is from The Street by H. P. Lovecraft, and read for us by Glenn Halstrom. And the sons of those young men in other days, who did indeed go forth in olive drab with the true spirit of their ancestors, went from distant places and knew not the street in its ancient spirit. Over the seas there was a great victory, and in triumph most of the young men returned. Those who had lacked something lacked it no longer, yet fear and hatred and ignorance still brood over the street, for many had stayed behind, and many strangers had come from distant places to the ancient houses. And the young men who had returned dwelt there no longer. Swarthy and sinister were most of the strangers, yet among them one might find a few faces like those who fashioned the street and molded its spirit. Like and yet unlike, for there was in the eyes of all a weird, unhealthy glitter, as of greed, ambition, vindictiveness, or misguided zeal. Unrest and treason were abroad amongst an evil few who plotted to strike the western land its death blow, that they might mount to power over its ruins even as assassins had mounted in that unhappy frozen land from whence most of them had come. And the heart of that plotting was in the street, whose crumbling houses teemed with alien makers of discord, and echoed with the plans and speeches of those who yearned for an appointed day of blood, flame, and crime. The ninth book is one I'm already listening to myself, and thoroughly enjoying. It's called Edison's Conquest of Mars by Garrett P. Service. Edison's Conquest of Mars is one of the many science fiction novels published in the 19th century. Although science fiction was at that time not thought of as a distinct literary genre, it was a very popular literary form, with almost every fiction magazine regularly publishing science fiction stories and novels. Edison's Conquest of Mars was published in 1898 as an unauthorized sequel to H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, but did not achieve the fame of its predecessor. The book was endorsed by Thomas Edison, the hero of the book, but not by Wells. The following sample comes from Chapter 1 and is read for us by Roger Mellon. When a comet approaches the sun, the orbit in which it travels indicates that it is moving under the impulse of the sun's gravitation. It is in reality falling in a great parabolic or elliptical curve through space. But, while a comet approaches the sun, it begins to display, stretching out for millions, and sometimes hundreds of millions of miles on the side away from the sun, an immense, luminous train called its tail. This train extends back into that part of space from which the comet is moving. Thus, the sun at one and the same time is drawing the comet toward itself, and driving off from the comet in an opposite direction, minute particles or atoms which, instead of obeying the gravitational force, 
are plainly compelled to disobey it. That this energy, which the sun exercises against its own gravitation, is electrical in its nature, hardly anybody will doubt. The head of the comet being comparatively heavy and massive, falls on toward the sun, despite the electrical repulsion. Our tenth and final book for June is a special one. It's a full-cast presentation of a literary classic, A Midsummer Night's Dream, by William Shakespeare. Magic, fairies, young lovers chasing each other through a forest, a man with a donkey's head, and impish puck wrecking havoc right and left. What's going on here? It's A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Shakespeare at his most fanciful. The play opens with Theseus, Duke of Athens, preparing for his wedding. Aegeus complains to Theseus that his daughter, Hermia, refuses to marry Demetrius. When Hermia is given the choice between marriage to Demetrius or life as a nun, she and her true love, Lysander, fly into the forest. Demetrius follows them, and Helena, who loves Demetrius, follows him. Also in the forest are Oberon and Titania, king and queen of the fairies, at odds with one another. At Oberon's behest, Puck causes Demetrius to fall in love with Helena, Oops, he missed, and that was Lysander instead. Mayhem ensues. In the meantime, a group of bumbling craftsmen rehearses a play. Puck gives him one of them, Bottom, the head of an ass, and makes Titania fall in love with him. Further hilarity results as Bottom sees nothing at all odd about this. Eventually everything is straightened out. Bottom and the rest perform their play. There is a triple wedding, and Puck assures us the whole thing has been a dream. The following sample comes from Act One, and as I said, there's no individual person here, it's a full cast. Oh, that your frowns would teach my smile such skill. I give him curses, yet he gives me love. Oh, that my prayers could such affection move. The more I hate, the more he follows me. The more I love, the more he hateth me. His folly, Helena, is no fault of mine. None but your beauty, would that fault were mine. Take comfort, he no more shall see my face. Lysander and myself will fly this place. Before the time I did Lysander see, seemed Athens as a paradise to me. Oh, then, what graces in my love do dwell, that he hath turned a heaven unto a hell? Helen, to you our minds we will unfold. Tomorrow night, when Phoebe doth behold her silver visage in the watery glass, decking with liquid pearl the bladed grass, a time that lovers' flights doth still conceal, through Athens' gates have we devised to steal. <laughs>